Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Alexa Gagas, in for Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. In 2023, we heard all about tin fish, girl dinner, butter boards, and zero-proof drinks. Inflation drove up prices, and we haven't heard the end of trying to build a more sustainable food system. So what's in store for the food and restaurant world in 2024? To find out, we'll talk to Jason Evans, the founding dean of the College of Food, Innovation, and Technology at Johnson & Wales University, after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Jason Evans, the founding dean of the College of Food, Innovation, and Technology at Johnson Wales University. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you, Alexa. Jason, what does it actually mean to be the dean of a College of Food, Innovation, and Technology? It's an incredibly powerful and glitzy position. (laughs) So as dean of the College of Food, Innovation, and Technology, that means that I have purview over the academic programs within food innovation. And that includes culinary arts, baking and pastry arts, culinary science, food science, culinary nutrition, sustainable food systems, food and beverage entrepreneurship. So first and foremost, it's minding the student experience, making sure that it's relevant, that it's rigorous, that it's high quality, and that it engenders lifelong learning. All right, let's talk about 2023. What were some of the biggest trends that you saw in food and restaurants this year? Right. So, you know, 2023 was really a continuation to some extent of what had been happening in the in the two years, three years prior, which is that food for so many consumers more than ever is a part of their personal identities. You won't go into a restaurant now without seeing people taking pictures of their food, clearly for social media or Instagram posts. Um, And they wouldn't be doing that if they weren't eating something that they felt connected to what they were or what they want to be. And so because of that, I actually think that there's an opportunity to turn that into some good news for the food system if people want to be identified as healthy, as 
aware of nutrition and what they're supposed to be doing for themselves, of sort of adventurous lifestyles. And so I think that trend is actually driving another trend, which is really experimenting and getting adventurous with flavors and spices from around the world. And I think that's been a lot of fun for restaurants and for food manufacturers to finally be able to pull into their repertoire spices and sauces that are phenomenal from Africa, from certainly Asia and India. Um, so it's, it's really about people connecting what they're eating to their personal identities with social media driving all of that. Mm -hmm. So TikTok in restaurants is okay in your eyes. Well, okay, so that's a personal question. I I mean, personally, I believe that when people are out eating with each other, you should probably focus on having a conversation with each other. But this has been the most important thing that's ever happened in marketing for food businesses, for restaurants, that our marketing budgets can look very different because if we're doing our jobs right, the customers are going to tell the story for us better than we ever will. Good point. What about what trends do you kind of hope die and stay in 2023? <laughs> in the plant-based movement, I think we're sort of at a off-ramp in that movement right now because ultimately where we need to get for people to really get the nutritional benefits of eating plant-heavy is in whole foods, whole plant-derived foods, and not necessarily these sometimes uber-processed substitutes for meat. Those products, yes, you're moving away from meat, but you're also moving it into an ingredient mix that still requires really heavy processing. And the research on uber-processing and health outcomes is actually more mature now than it's ever been. Just in the last three months, new information, new data, new, uh, new insights about the health implications of eating really heavily processed foods. So I, I hope we get beyond that a little bit to just understanding that what it's really about is eating whole food. And, and frankly, for me, if you have a little cooking know-how, not a lot, but a little cooking know-how, it doesn't really take a lot to take a vegetable or a fruit in its natural whole form and make it delicious for everybody at the table, including kids. Right. Now, 2024, we're right on the cusp of it. What predictions do you have for food trends, restaurant trends for this year? Yeah, so I think that this sort of adventure anywhere, I mean, the, the, the pandemic convinced people, I think, to some extent that sometimes it's really fun to stay at home in your jammies. And I think that that's not going to go away. But what restaurants are figuring out is how do I add big flavor, high quality and not lose the convenience factors of takeaway and delivery. So I think you're going to continue to see a lot of innovation in getting food to people quick, but that is much better food than what we have now through our super fast options like takeout and fast food. Okay, what about the small menu changes, the trends that we have seen and we should expect in 2024? I think that kale is probably out for the moment. Foam is probably out. Even in fine dining, there's some comfort food bleeding into there, right? Food that is fussy enough to be beautiful and to feel high-end. But boy, does it have to be comfort food-esque, right? People are allowing themselves indulgences. And, and if they're at a restaurant, that's where they want those in, 
indulgences, right? So uh, fussy food meets comfort food is really happening in, a, in the restaurant scene at this point. On the beverage side, the low proof or zero proof options, this youngest generation is in fact actually drinking less alcohol. And so companies are coming out with things that really favor flavor over alcohol content. And you just go into the grocery store now and see any of these pop top seltzer mixes. Those are really moving. And I think that that will probably continue. As I said, just global spicing found everywhere. Asian flavors especially, but in all of that, the global flavor piece, convenience, 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 convenience. So I actually think that you're going to see more innovation, more forward thinking in the packaged foods markets than you might at the restaurant level. We know how to be really sophisticated about that now and maintain food safety and product quality, but still actually crank out something that's really delicious. Kale is out. Brussels sprouts had their time. I think everyone is all done with buffalo cauliflower, maybe. What's the next big vegetable? Any vegetable that I can ferment. So chef-driven fermentation concepts like kimchi. And again, pulling on that appreciation and wanting to experiment with global flavors. I mean, let's face it, most Americans probably, as of 10 years ago, maybe hadn't tasted kimchi. But what's happened, I think, is that you do get some benefits of this trickling out of health and nutrition information through social media and clearly fermented foods with their probiotic principles and that it's plant forward primarily, it's veggies. I think kimchi is hot right now. What's the next food gimmick? Okay. So you tell me what is the most recent food gimmick? I'm over tiki bars. And I keep seeing tiki bar menus coming up again, and I don't get it. Huh. I only want my drink in a pineapple if I'm literally on the beach. Yeah. Food boards a little bit. Butter but, boards? Yes. Okay. So we'll, we can go with that one. Butter boards. Right. You're so over I, it. I, 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 <laughs> I actually am not over board foods just because, you know, I have this glimmer of hope that maybe – when people understand that the old cheese board has new life to it, that maybe people actually start entertaining in their homes again and, and that you see food once again as this kind of easy way to bring people together. But you're right. Some of that gets a little bit gimmicky and so gimmicky that it really, really may go away pretty quick. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm seeing boards everywhere. French toast boards, monkey bread boards, pancake yeah. boards. I mean, you name it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but again, even though it feels a little gimmicky and it might go away because of that, you know, you put a bunch of food out on a board in the center of a table, there's something communal about that that I really kind of appreciate. And I got to tell you, I just personally, I beeline for a board if I'm at a food event. I mean, I'm just going to hang out there. It's easy. It's handheld. People are gathering there. It's a gimmick I really actually kind of appreciate. I mean, I like a cheese board. I hope that doesn't go on sabbatical. No, cheese is never going to go away. True. 
I feel like I'm seeing everywhere these super immersive dining experiences at different restaurants, meals being served in all sorts of unusual locations like underwater or in double-decker buses. Are these just marketing tactics or is this kind of part of the future of restaurants? It is part of the future of restaurants. And in fact, this one made the big list basically at the flavor experience this year in San Diego, which is sort of the annual gathering of what's happening in food, experiential eating. I think it tacks back to what I started with, which is eating is not just about eating anymore. It's it's the immersive experience and what it represents for my identity and who I am or who I want to be. But I think that these restaurants are really onto something. And if you think about it, one of the only sort of parallels to that before now has been a restaurant built into a bowling alley or these movie theaters that'll come and serve you really pretty awful food while you're watching a movie. Think about the world of opportunity and innovation there is in changing that and making it even better. So I, I actually think it's a low-cost way to have such a great evening out without expending a lot of resources. And that's what people are looking for. I want a big experience bang for my buck. And these restaurant experiential sort of dive-ins are the way to do it. Mm. You also come from an agricultural background. How do you see climate change, one of the biggest issues that we face in the world? How is it affecting the food supply? I think most notable is that USDA three months ago or so released its new planting zones map, which has changed appreciably. And the truth is in the Northeast, because we have generally warmer winters now. Now, precipitation is much more much more unpredictable than it might have been a generation ago. But warmer winters, earlier starts to spring and summer, you actually have this wider variety of things that you can technically grow in New England or the Northeast. I mean, it's hard to parlay that into good news, but it is a thing. It is, it is happening. I would say, though, that climate change most broadly is an opportunity for farm and food producers who are doing business differently than commercial scale agriculture to add importance to their story, right? To say that if we really don't do something about agriculture that is still fairly petroleum heavy, I mean, the food miles that most of our food moves is 2,000 plus, including certainly fruits and vegetables. I mean, that's all coming from California, Arizona, or out of the country uh, most of the year. If we don't figure that piece of the food system out, and all, of course, the, the greenhouse gas implications of mass commercial animal agriculture, then agriculture will have contributed pretty significantly to this big problem. So I think it just creates an opportunity to tell the story of why doing business a little differently is important. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, like, is there any policy changes that we could make in order to, like, tackle climate change? But it seems like we'd have to make them on a national scale or even international scale. But is there anything that we could do locally in Rhode Island? Well, <laughs> um, how personal do I get? <laughs> I don't trust that policy moving forward is what's going to move the needle on major, complex, wicked problems, climate change being one of them. 
but more broadly, food system problems being one of them. And those include the fact that even though we produce food at lower cost than anywhere else in the world, and we're the most developed country in the world, there are still people in this country without access to food dependably. There are certainly people in this country without access to nutritious food. There are people in this country who don't have any food know-how. And so the idea of cooking and using whole fruits and vegetables is a field too far. I mean, our, our household living is stressful, it's budget constrained, and the last thing that most households wanna think about is grocery shopping, meal planning, and preparing a meal at home. I think that instead of relying on policy to fundamentally change consumer behavior, which would then drive change in the system, this is really about entrepreneurs and food manufacturers and farm businesses putting iteratively better products in front of consumers. Mm -hmm. At the grocery store, in restaurant concepts, that's what's gonna lead the change. And ultimately, if we in our food industry figure out how to produce food that is iteratively more nutritious, uses better ingredients that whose production processes are less damaging, and that are still accessible and affordable, that over time is what will save us. And there's some evidence of that. Look at soda pop consumption. Soda pop consumption is probably at its lowest level in decades. 20 years ago, you would have never imagined that happening. But the reason it did is because you had delicious, affordable, accessible alternatives in the market. It was not a policy shift. It was a shift in product mix. Same thing with cauliflower. There was a 60% increase in per capita cauliflower consumption between 2016 and 2017. Well, that's because food product developers figured out how to make it into pizza crust, chips, and pretzels. It wasn't because people were eating raw cauliflower more. So I really am optimistic about this, that if you put it in front of a consumer and it still tastes delicious and it's still affordable and it's still accessible, they will try new things and they'll move the needle on these bigger outcomes. If you had a wish list, even if it's the biggest picture idea that you don't think could happen, do you have any trends in your mind that you wish would occur in 2024 or 2025? So I'm going to go really big picture. Mm -hmm. With this little fire around global flavors and global spices, I actually hope that we figure out how to turn that into much more robust and positive worldviews that, that we eventually get to a point where we see we're really all pretty much the same. There's some things we can learn about building a system that's more resilient, more sustainable, and frankly, from a nutrition standpoint, better for us. If we open our eyes a little bit to what the rest of the world does, and, and food might just be a vehicle for sparking that curiosity and those conversations. I told you it was going to be a big picture. Mm -hmm. Right. Saving the world basically through food. Jason, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you, Alexa. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall with help from Carlos Munoz and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Alexa Gagas. Ed will be back next week.
Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.